Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and dynamic women invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. One of those dynamic women was producer, director, choreographer, and dancing star Gertrude Hoffman, who was a colleague and key collaborator of nearly all of the legendary figures of early Broadway, including Florence Ziegfeld, Oscar Hammerstein the first, the Schubert brothers, and George M. Cohan. But unfortunately, Gertrude Hoffman has been left out of most of the history books, at least until recently. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest again today is Sonny Stalter-Pace, whose fascinating new book is titled Imitation Artist, Gertrude Hoffman's Life in Vaudeville and Dance. If you missed the first half of our conversation, you may want to catch up with that before continuing with this one. Last time, Sonny shared the story of Hoffman's journey from teenage dancing star in San Francisco to her marriage to arranger and composer Max Hoffman and on to her early success in the rooftop garden theaters of New York, where she became the first woman to receive billing for choreographing a Broadway musical. As we left off, Gertrude Starr was rising and she was capitalizing on her skill for mimicry by doing impressions of the greatest stars of her day, both female and male, and sometimes impersonating them in the same show with those stars. But it was her next venture that made her one of the most talked about women in America when she took on the role of Salome and performed her scandalous Dance of the Seven Veils. As we pick up our conversation, Sunny Stalter Pace is explaining just how this happened. Because she's known as a mimic, and because she's known in the press as being pretty feisty about her mimicry, she gets sent over to London. Who sends her there? Willie Hammerstein. And what's the point of her going to London? Well, Willie Hammerstein has a roof garden. He wants a big act for the summer. He's read about a performer named Maude Allen, who's doing a Dance of the Seven Veils that was making a huge hit in London. And he knows 
knows that Maude Allen is under contract in London, at least over the summer. So he has Hoffman go over there and watch her performance so she can come back more quickly and give an imitation of Maude Allen's Salome dance. That would be the first way anyone in New York could see it without getting on a notion liner. So Maude Allen's dance is creating a sensation in London and people in New York are already hearing about it. And he's trying to get his own version of her Salome dance on the stage before she can get there to do it. Right. And you can't record it and show a bootleg version of it. So he sends over somebody who's really good at copying and really good at taking in a whole stage picture. She sees it from the audience about a dozen times and then comes back and performs it nominally as an imitation of Maude Allen's Salome, but bringing enough to it that people really think of it as Hoffman's dance too. And of course, it's the first time they're seeing it. So of course it's Hoffman's dance because she's <laughs> right. the one introducing it to New York and to America. She gets paid very well to do this. I love that story you tell about when Hammerstein approaches her and says, I want you to do this. She says, I want a thousand dollars. And he says, no. And then and she says, okay, 1250 You should have heard me the first time. She knows her <laughs> worth. She knows that she's the only one who's going to be able to do this really well. So she definitely got paid for her time. So this is a strong, independent woman at the center of Broadway during this period. Absolutely. And could go toe to toe with any of the famous producers. One thing I thought was interesting is that you talk about Hammerstein wants to do this partly because it's a rivalry with William Morris. And of course, everyone's heard of the William Morris agency. But at this time, William Morris himself is a Broadway producer, a vaudeville producer. He's got Maude Allen contracted to come to do the show. So it's a rivalry between the big shots on Broadway at this point as well. Because yeah. the people who get the first to market advantage yeah, even if you have Maude Allen coming later and doing the authentic Salome dance, you still don't get the first strike at it that you get with Gertrude Hoffman. Well, and in fact, when Maude Allen finally does come, she's compared unfavorably to Gertrude Hoffman. Yeah, they said it didn't have as much of an edge. That had to hurt, I would say Hoffman's dance was simultaneously an imitation and a unique original itself. Mm -hmm. And part of this is because of her reputation. People don't know whether to read her as a comic performer or a serious, sexy performer. There are people who watch it and think, oh, she's making fun of this. There's a prop head of John the Baptist, and this is supposed to be very scandalous when she kissed it. And some people thought, oh, that's horrible. And a couple of critics saw it and said, yeah, she's making fun of this melodramatic form of performance. Yeah, it was just a really fascinating mix of dancing in a way that was very serious, embodying the character, but also having moments and gestures that felt like little winks to the audience all the way through, too. That's so interesting because it's a melodramatic story. I mean, it's really over the top. Any version of Salome. Sure. So that she had this, I wouldn't call it ambiguity, but this sort of ability to have things two ways at once. Yeah. Was very modern in a way because it was sort of ironic. Ironic, I guess, modern in its sensibility about that, maybe for the first time. 
Absolutely. To not do it as a way of performing as a diva, but as a way of showing I can do this serious and I can have an ironic distance from it at the same time. And the levels of comedy and sexuality that are going on there, again, all at the same time, are really interesting as well. She's able to make it very complex, but very popular. And just super modern, too. What's hard to wrap our heads around is that this is prior to striptease really being part of burlesque or really coming on the scene. But clearly, this is one of the antecedents of that. Yeah, the level of undress was right on the edge of what was acceptable. She had knee-length nude trunks on under her veiled skirt and kind of a breastplate, and I don't think any kind of brassiere underneath it. There was a lot of her body that was visible, especially in the parts when she was sort of whirling around and kind of feeling abandoned and slumping onto the floor. Well, and also part of this, aren't we seeing a woman on stage being very sexually aggressive free with her body in a way that is unusual. Oh yeah, that's why the character of Salome was so appealing at this point, because the whole point of the story of Salome, as told by Oscar Wilde, is Salome desires John the Baptist. She wants to kiss him. She wants to devour his body. And then when he refuses her, she asks for his head on a platter and then can finally kiss him when it's just his head. So Salome is all about female desire. And I think the reason it becomes so appealing is because you can perform it and then you can take it off. So it's not something that permanently sticks with you. It's just a little bit of a play acting. And ultimately you get to say it's from the Bible. Yeah, that too. <laughs> Which sort of gets you off the hook. And it becomes a sensation. You say New York City is overrun with dances of the Seven Veils knockoffs after this. And she continues to perform it, not just at the Hammerstein Roof, where she starts in 1908, but then she performs that all over the country, basically. Does She becomes part of her vaudeville act. Mm-hmm. First with the Mimic World, and then it's part of her act for the rest of the time she does vaudeville. Other people now imitate her, Fanny Bryce and Eva Tangway and the great drag performer Julian Eltinge and Ada Overton Walker even all create their own versions of the Dance of the Seven Veils, either as even more comic versions like Fanny Bryce. Sadie Cone left her happy home to become an actress lady. On the stage, she soon became the rage As the only real Salome baby When she came to town, her sweetheart Mose Brought for her around a pretty rose But he got an awful fright When his Sadie came in sight He stood up and yelled with all his might don't do that dance, I tell you, Sadie. That's not a business for a lady. Most everybody knows that I'm your loving most. Oi, 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 where is your clothes? You better go and get 
your dresses Everyone's got the opera glasses Oi, such a sad disgrace No one looks in your face Say these so long, go home But all of them in reaction and in relation to what Gertrude's done. Absolutely. I think they take her license with Maud Allen's original as a starting off point for thinking, yeah, we can just do the Dance of the Seven Veils in a way that emphasizes what's unique and interesting about each of us as performers. For the first time, she now starts to work with two more of the most important people in New York theater, and that's the Schubert brothers. You mentioned The Mimic World, which is a show that they incorporate her Salome and her other mimic routines as well into. And it sounds like that whole show is about mimicking things. That does take on the format that you had just mentioned about burlesque as being a parody of the most popular shows of the day. It was sort of sending around to the rest of the U.S. sketches that have little goofy versions of things that were popular on Broadway. But here she gets into trouble, at least in a couple cities, again, whether it's publicity stunt or whether it's real, but she gets arrested for indecency in Kansas City. And when she comes back to New York, she gets arrested for indecency. Mm -hmm. The arrests when she's out on tour, those seem like they are pretty motivated by public outcry. There are preachers speaking out against her. Billy Sunday, is that who it is? Yeah. But by the time she gets back, scholars are pretty sure that the arrest for indecency when she gets back was a publicity stunt because she's performed this in New York before. It's kind of old hat. So it's a way to get more interest. And everybody else has performed it too by yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah. It's somewhere in this period where Maud Allen finally performs at Carnegie Hall and is thought to be not as good as Gertrude Hoffman. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because at the height of this fame, she's always reinventing herself, it seems like. Although she's always taking what she has and reusing it, she seems to have these several different ways of reinventing herself. This next period is where she really starts to create reviews within her vaudeville acts. In fact, her act is called Gertrude Hoffman's Review. Yeah, this is where I think Gertrude Hoffman as the performer and Gertrude Hoffman as the choreographer, director, producer really start to come together because she thinks about the pacing. She thinks about what other acts she wants to bring on with her and does just really interesting work that I think is super influential in terms of moving beyond vaudeville is just kind of a very diverse and unrelated set of acts to something that has sort of a thread of coherence to it, even though it's different from beat to beat. It's almost like a whole vaudeville show pushed into her own act. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because you said there's 12 distinct numbers in her own act. And you also say that this influenced the work of better-known producers and choreographers, at least today, like Ziegfeld and Busby Berkeley. Talk a little bit more about that. What do you think that influence was? I think that having the kind of aesthetic coherence even within the movement between different types of acts. With Ziegfeld, he definitely stole particular numbers, bathing girl numbers and things like that. But in terms of somebody like Busby Berkeley, I think that idea that a review is going to have some unifying principles to it, even though there is a kind of up and down all the way through is something that she's really the first one to, to craft. 
And within that unity, it's very eclectic, too, and very diverse. She has Sri Lankan dancers and musicians in her show. Over the years, she will use many performers from various nationalities and various cultures that she'll incorporate into her shows. Yeah, she uses performers from quite a few different countries. This is something that became a little bit of a trend in modern dance at the time. But as with many things Hoffman did, she's taking it out of the kind of classical venue and into a bigger and more popular stage. And this is the era of Ruth St. Dennis and Ted Sean and Dennis Sean, which are doing some of those same kinds of things. And in fact, she imitates Ruth St. Dennis in this act or is inspired by Ruth St. Dennis. It's hard to understand. She has a cobra dance, I guess, in this act. Yeah, I think the cobra dance is imitating Ruth St. Dennis. Yeah. I find it so interesting that she's clearly so smart and so tuned in and she is on the lookout and in the wavelength of modern dance as it's emerging in its earliest days and will continue to be tuned into that and drawing from that at the same time that she's drawing from jazz and ragtime and classical dance and ballet. She seems to have very eclectic interests and sensibilities. And I think she has very good taste too. She has a sense of who the innovators are and she has the means to go and see them and to hire them on occasion. I love that she brings her eclectic taste into her performance in a way where you can still tell where she's borrowing from. And she alternates, it seems, from spoofing these things to then doing them very seriously. Isadora Duncan is one of her influences, and she has a section of dances based on the Blue Danube Waltz, some of which are quite serious and some of which are humorous. As you said, she has the ability to travel to see things, and she goes to Europe often during this period. And on one of those trips, she sees the Ballet Russe performing in Paris. she becomes obsessed with it. She really wants to bring them to America. She says it's her duty as an artist. But again, as with Maud Allen, they are booked. They're booked in Europe and they can't. So she decides to copy them instead. Who is the Ballet Russe? What is it she's seeing that she's fallen in love with? Okay, so the Ballet Russe is a troupe of modern ballet performers. Diaghilev is their director and kind of the conceptualizer. Empresario, um, yeah. These performances have very modern choreography, but they're even more remarkable because of the sets and costumes around them. It's definitely moving away from a kind of 19th century Swan Lake type of ballet that's very pretty and romantic. Instead, it's very modern. You have bold colors, really abstract sets. People like Pablo Picasso end up designing costumes for them. It's the best example that's going on at the time of a kind of total work of art. I can't say that in German, so I just say it in English, where every piece of it is contributing to the overall effect. So this is a revolution in dance. Nothing's entirely new, but certainly a very new take on it. Nijinsky is the star of the Ballet Rouge during right. this period or just prior to this? Anna Pavlova and Nijinsky too. And as you said, she has incredible taste, so she is falling in love with it. She wants to bring it to America. That's not possible. She's 
going to basically do her own version of the Ballet Russe, get to it as close as she can, that she will produce in the United States. And she works with some of the artists from the Ballet Russe to make that happen. Right. She studies ballet with Theodor Koslov. She's not done any classical ballet before then. So that's just incredible to imagine. And how old is she at this point? Oh, gosh. She's like in her 30s, I 30. assume. 30, yeah. Yeah. She's born in what year? In 1883. So she's 30. She's in her mid-30s. Mm-hmm. And she decides to recreate three of the ballets, Cleopatra, Les Sylphides, and Sherazade. Yeah, and she decides that she should star in the central performer role in Cleopatra and Sherazade. Which, even in the Ballet Russe version, they were designed for a woman who was not a great dancer or not a primarily a dancer. Right. A magnificent performer who could move. Right. It makes sense that Gertrude Hoffman would see this Ida Rubinstein performance and say, oh, yeah, I could do that. I have mm-hmm. presence. I can move. I can imitate. I can be a part of a particular artistic whole. So that's what she does. And of course, at least one of those ballets, Les Sophie, is still at the center of ballet repertoire today. And Scheherazade is often performed as well. So these are major works that she now decides to take on. And amazingly enough, she puts together a cast of 125 and an orchestra of 60 to tour America with ballets that no one's ever seen before. Yeah. It's not until they get to the West Coast and get that kind of hero's welcome in San Francisco that they start making money because it's such a huge cast and such huge complicated sets. It's a lot to move across the country. But by the time she gets out West and gets a lot of support and then starts putting some of her individual vaudeville performances in between the Russian ballets, then it really comes together as a show. And then, of course, people who wanted to treat it as a kind of highbrow art by itself were even more scandalized because not only are you a vaudeville actress doing Russian ballets, but you're also doing your vaudeville imitations in between the Russian ballets. It's just too much. Well, and of course, critics never like anything that is too popular and that audiences (laughs) find really entertaining. But she plays this all over the country. She plays it at the Winter Garden Theater in New York. It, again, creates a sensation of a kind. You say she has to add some show business to it to sort of put it over and sell it with a general audience, but she does. Mm -hmm. And again, sort of like with Maud Allen, when the real Ballet Russe finally makes it to America, Gertrude Hoffman's ballets are mentioned in those reviews and sometimes the real ballet russe is thought to be inferior. Mm-hmm. I mean, people still love the individual dancers. There's a total cult of celebrity there. But as for the performance as a whole, sometimes Gertrude Hoffman did it better. She knew how to put on a show, which is interesting because not all classically based artists will think that way. And she knew the audience. I mean, she'd been touring coast to coast for so much of her life at that point. I think she really understood how to translate it. After this great success in a way, or at least great achievement, do you think she should be better known and better thought of for introducing Russian ballet to America? What effect did she have on ballet in America? 
I do think she should be better known for that. That was the thing that I couldn't believe I'd never heard of before because the Ballet Russe performances really are seen as a landmark in modern performance. So thinking, oh, how did they get here? I think that her name should be in the books. When she is mentioned, sometimes it's in a sort of embarrassed way, like, oh, there was this kind of knockoff Ballet Russe performance before the originals came. But when you recognize the greatness and you recreate it and you bring it there first. I mean, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. What I'm interested in is the effect of it, the growth of the audience for ballet, the priming of an audience for American ballet. What effect did she have on that would be interesting to track? Yeah. I know that in the ensuing years, ballet becomes more American, that people who have come over who are formerly in the ballet roots are training people and performing. There gets to be a sense that there should be an American version of the ballet. And I think, you know, she definitely plants the seeds for that, for sure. And she sort of flips on a dime in a way. Maybe it didn't feel that way to her at the time. But when you read about it, it feels like now she sort of flips to a very Broadway-centered, very pop-centered period of her life, where she goes from classical ballet to now a show called Broadway to Paris. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be right back. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. She goes from classical ballet to now a show called Broadway to Paris. Again, with the Schubert's at the Winter Garden in 1912. The thing I love about Broadway to Paris, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the book, but it's one of the only and maybe the only full script that's still around from one of her shows like this. This is a book musical, and you got to read it. Yes, I love this. The script is still around. It's at UCLA in the Olson and Johnson collection because they bought old scripts of Ned Wayburn's to see if there were any jokes or gags in them that they could use. This is one of the scripts that was still there. It's a book musical where two young people from New York go to Paris and then meet and fall in love. And Gertrude Hoffman is a famous Parisian performer and star who comes into the different acts that are involved loosely with the plot, but not so much. You say Hoffman was constantly in motion, tumbling out of a handsome cab, riding around the stage on a bicycle and performing the Gertrude Hoffman glide. Like so many shows from this period, it was loose enough that even though she was playing a character in the play, they could also include a song and dance called the Gertrude Hoffman Glide, where you step out of the play to talk about the actress as opposed to the character she's playing. Right. And yeah, Max Hoffman wrote that for her. It references all of her other famous performances, kind of tries to get all that cult of celebrity going. But then she goes back to being the actress in the show, doing all kinds of tricks and keeping everybody's eyes on her when she's on stage. What was said about the show is that it had a pace that kills, that (laughs) it was so fast and fast moving, which was what she was striving for, wasn't it? Absolutely. When I teach modern popular performance, I always like to talk about speed as being one of the hallmarks of modern popular performance. You want to cut, you want to go quickly from one thing to another. You don't want anything to lag. You don't want anyone to get bored. And this is a show where you really see that. And do you think she learned part of that or picked up that from Cohen? Because of course he was famous for bringing that to Broadway. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And just from seeing so many vaudeville shows and thinking about how to move between in one so you can change the sets behind the curtain and then do a quick change there. She really brings all of her training and experience to it. And at the height of this, she goes back to vaudeville. And as you say, she's a headliner at the height of vaudeville's popularity. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the peak of the vaudeville era. And she is among the biggest stars at that moment. Yeah, she has her own review. She comes up with all the acts. She stages them. She shows her versatility, jumps down into the orchestra pit and plays the drums. She's just all over the place. I would love to be able to see what this act was like. It sounds amazing. 
Well, and she seems to know it was amazing because she bills it as Gertrude Hoffman in Gertrude Hoffman's review originated and staged by Gertrude Hoffman. (laughs) (laughs) Never modest. But I I admire that, again, especially for a woman during this period to just come out and say, it's me. I'm the one that makes this happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a reviewer says of that show, it's not a vaudeville act, it's a production. So she sort of takes Broadway on the road in a way. Yeah. And as you say, not being modest, it's easy to understand why you say she was paid $105,000 for 30 weeks. And I did the math on that. And in today's money, that would be more than $3 million. Yeah, just unreal. Again, the power that she had, because money is power. So she's able to channel her talent into that kind of power, which is Mm -hmm. really interesting. Then she goes into another Broadway show as a performer and as a star. And that's a show called Dance and Grow Thin. Is this the Schubert's again? That's Ziegfeld. Is this part of the dance craze of this period? Because the castles and ballroom dance sort of takes over New York and America during this period. Yeah, absolutely. So Dance and Grow Thin had music by Irving Berlin, plays at the Coconut Grove. And the Coconut Grove is a rooftop theater. Yep. And she has a snake. She performs with a snake. This is the only time I know of. I think there might be one early number where she enters on a horse very early in her career, but this is the only time she works with animals aside from that. But she ends up not liking working in the roof gardens. It's too close to people. She doesn't have the kind of control of the space that she is now used to. So it's not a great experience for her compared to the things she's been doing in the recent past. So even though she's a big hit in it, she doesn't like being in a cabaret setting. Mm -hmm. Eventually during this period, and of course I'm condensing things a bit, but vaudeville peters out, vaudeville dies. And after more than 20 years of performing, she's probably looking again to reinvent herself. And she Mm -hmm. starts to focus on choreographing and producing and especially training dancers and forms her own dance troupe where those dancers can perform, the Gertrude Hoffman Girls. She starts a studio and she trains the Gertrude Hoffman Girls who end up becoming a big part of her legacy in terms of touring. They become a worldwide sensation, don't they? Yeah, they play in Paris, they play in Berlin. London, New York. And they are different from other precision dance troupes at the time because they're not only doing things that are very choreographed in unison, but they also have their own dance specialties that they can do individually. It's less about being that drilled unit and more about being really acrobatic and athletic and kind of, I guess, a lot like Gertrude Hoffman herself, being able to morph back and forth between different types of performance. Another big group during this period were the Tiller Girls. They're from England, north of England, I think, that kind of industrial area. And they were renowned for precision dancing, much like the Rockettes would be later and still are today, where the point is, is that every woman is identical to the woman next to you and they kick exactly the same height and there's no individualization among them. What Gertrude Hoffman brought to the table was that plus individualization of the dancers. Absolutely. When they performed at cabarets in Paris, they would have kind of a breakdown at the end of the first act where 
each girl would come on and do her specialty and kind of try to get the most applause from the crowd. So there's definitely a switch off between the real choreographed precision of the group and then showing off your individual skill and style. So the Gertrude Hoffman girls make their debut. Their first performance Mm -hmm. is in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1923. And the picture you have in your book is amazing. They're performing this sort of aerial acrobatic number, this web number. 18 girls dangling from ropes, and apparently it ended with them swinging out over the audience. Yeah, the Gertrude Hoffman girls are really, their acts are where I do have to compare it to something like Cirque du Soleil, where you just have that incredible athleticism. Clearly, that's a circus skill, that web work you still see in Cirque du Soleil. But to see that picture of those 18 girls doing it in the Ziegfeld Follies is quite amazing. Mm -hmm. That was 1923. And then the following year, they do that same act in London at the London Palladium. And I thought it was interesting there, again, with Gertrude Hoffman's history with this stuff is the Lord Chamberlain makes them put more clothes on to do their act. (laughs) Yeah, she really takes the things she's learned as a solo performer and replicates them with the Gertrude Hoffman girls, including that kind of strategic nudity that's going to get you the press. Yeah, she doesn't seem to be shy about her own body or about showcasing that of her dancers. Mm-hmm. You tell a story at one point, one of her students, I think, who gets offered a job in burlesque, I guess, mm-hmm. where she has to appear topless. Yeah. And Gertrude Hoffman says, oh, yeah, you should absolutely do it. There's no reason to be ashamed of the human body. It's beautiful and it's natural. So she had a very sex positive attitude about that, Mm -hmm. it seems. Yeah. Interesting. So then we go into a series of three very big Broadway shows that she and the Gertrude Hoffman girls are involved in. She as the choreographer and producer of at least their segment in these shows. The first one is 1925 in a show called Artists and Models at the Winter Garden, which was a big, big hit for the Schuberts and was known as being a very racy show. Mm-hmm. Why do you do a show called Artists and Models? Because what are the artists painting? They're painting naked girls. So it's right. a way to put naked girls on the stage. And in fact, I read that this was the first Broadway show with topless girls moving as opposed <laughs> to in a tableau. Yeah, I love that that was the thing that kept the Ziegfeld Follies sufficiently classy was having topless girls that were still. Statues, basically. Mm-hmm. In those Ben Ali Hagen tableaus. So it's interesting that, again, Gertrude Hoffman is part of this and part of making a giant hit Broadway review. As you said, during this period is when she opens her school and through that school, she's supplying dancers to lots of other shows. Yeah. Gertrude Hoffman ends up being the place where you can outsource the choruses for a lot of reviews and Broadway shows in the 20s. So she's sort of like a teacher and an agent. Mm-hmm. So the producers come to her and say, we need 18 girls. And she says, I'll send them to you. They pay Gertrude Hoffman and Gertrude Hoffman pays the girls is the impression I get. Yep, that's right. Then the Gertrude Hoffman girls as a troupe are involved in A Night in Paris, another big hit show. And then two years later, A Night in Spain, sort of two related big Schubert productions. And for that show, Gertrude Hoffman choreographs the entire show, not just the Gertrude Hoffman girls segments. 
Yeah, it's kind of a callback to being Toto the Spanish dancer when she was young. And she always loved Spanish dance, even in the 1940s, after she's pretty much done doing anything else. There's lots of pamphlets and postcards in her archive for when she goes and sees flamenco shows. Interesting. A Night in Spain ends up being Gertrude Hoffman's last Broadway show, but certainly not the end of her career, although she's winding up to that, whether she knows it or not, she is winding up, but still very active. Vaudeville is dead, but there are other outlets for the Gertrude Hoffman girls. There's movie prologues, which are hard to explain, but if anybody's ever seen the movie Footlight Parade, you see movie prologues as part of the plot of that movie. Busby Berkeley's doing them, and again, this may be partly where he's inspired by Gertrude Hoffman. Or what the Rockettes do at the beginning of Let's Go to the Movies. Exactly. And in fact, for years, I remember going to Radio City when I first came to New York in the early 80s, you would still go to see a movie at Radio City and before it would be a short show with the Rockettes. So they were still doing movie prologues in my adult lifetime. That sort of evolved into the Christmas show in a way, but that originally was just a short show before a movie. Yep. So the Hoffman girls are doing movie prologues and they do floor shows at a lot of nightclubs in New York and Chicago. That's pretty much where they have their gigs. It's where vaudeville went, basically. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting. That was sort of the animating question for Hoffman's later years is, okay, when vaudeville's gone, where does all of this go? I think I knew about the vaudeville that migrated to radio and television, the kind of comic and personality-driven side of vaudeville. But with Gertrude Hoffman's career, I got a sense of where the big spectacular chorus numbers, where the flash act went, because those didn't go to radio. You can't see a spectacular number on the radio, but you can see it in a nightclub. And she wasn't around long enough, really, to go to television like the June Taylor Dancers or something like that. That's just a little bit after her working period. Right. One of the nightclubs that they perform in in New York, and this is with 18 girls, so these are big shows. This is not a little nightclub show the way we think of it today. This is more like a Vegas show Mm -hmm. at the Paramount Grill, which I believe is still there. You can still go in the basement of the Paramount Hotel in New York, which later became Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe. Oh, I didn't know that. There's some kind of nightclub in there now. I don't remember what they're calling it these days, but at least part of that space is still being used as some kind of nightclub. That's cool. Yeah. And her dance studio is still going strong. Her legacy of training dancers is a major part of her story. Absolutely. And her teaching staff is very eclectic. Her studio is teaching all styles of dance. Mm-hmm. Tap, Spanish, acrobatics, all kinds of stuff. And dancers who are getting that first wave of modern dance training with people like Martha Graham. She's there at the same time, and she's a place where dancers that train with Martha Graham can show off their techniques and share them with other people who might be interested. I'm always interested in tracking that kind of impact. If that was the place you went to study dance at that point, who were those dancers that came through that school that would later become either important dancers or choreographers or things like that? The Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. handed down from one person to the next nature of Broadway is fascinating to me. 
So let's talk about their final years for Gertrude and Max. They've been together 60 plus years at this point. They're a little bit sad, although not as tragic as they could be. They don't die penniless or anything. As I said at the beginning, Gertrude's sort of trying to get people interested in her story. She plans a comeback routine in 44 that never happens. She has just pages and pages of budget and costume lists and things that she's planning to do, but it never gets off the ground. Max plays violin in the orchestra pit of Oklahoma. So he's still got his hand in. I thought that was amazing. He's still on Broadway. Yeah. In the orchestra of Oklahoma, the biggest, newest thing, and conducting it sometimes, you said. Yeah, yeah, substitute conductor. They still go to a lot of shows, but they sort of feel like there's not as much for them to do in New York anymore. And Gertrude's sister has lived in California for a while and sends her letters saying, hey, you should move out here. You know, Max can conduct a orchestra for film scores and you can do choreography. I'm sure you'll both get in here. And they find Finally moved to California in the 50s, but there's no evidence that they got any work there. I mean, they're both pretty old at this point and don't really have connections over there. One of the benefits of getting to know the archivists at the Schubert Archive really well is when I was finishing up the book, one of the archivists wrote me and said, hey, I found a telegram that was sent to J.J. Schubert's son by Max Hoffman. You might want to look at it. So I looked at it and it's basically Max Hoffman saying, oh my God, I'm so bored out here. Can you send me a train ticket and get me back to New York? I'll work in the pit of any show that'll have me. He did not like California. And he ends up dying pretty soon after they move. She lives by herself for a while. She's a practicing Christian scientist and is just writing in her diaries and trying to get something going in terms of a biopic. But she she dies just a little bit after Funny Girl opens on Broadway. And I was thinking, huh, I wonder if that's something else that Gertrude Hoffman was wondering about. Like, oh, here's something else where they're remembering people from my period. My contemporaries, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. She likely shared a bill with Fanny Bryce at some point. Oh, for sure, for sure. But what an amazing long career they both had. What would you say are Gertrude's major legacies? We talked a little bit about her legacy to dance in America. What would you say her legacy to Broadway is? I think her legacy to Broadway is to show that there were women working behind the scenes there from the very beginning. That this isn't something that's novel, that it's still something where women are shamefully underrepresented, but it's something where women have made an impact from the very start. I think that's so important and I make that point because it runs counter to what we generally think. We just think women were excluded entirely, but that's not the case. They were there, they were making their mark, they were important, as you just said, underrepresented, but not missing. Yeah, absolutely. We sort of touched on this a moment ago. The Gertrude Hoffman girls certainly were an inspiration to other troops of girls that came after her. Putting your name as the choreographer with your dance troupe, like the June Taylor dancers and Albertina Rash. Oh, yeah. Albertina Rash clearly, I think, follows in the footsteps of Gertrude Hoffman and does a lot of the same things. Choreographs for Broadway is one of the big choreographers of Broadway and has her own troupe of girls who then go, in her case, perform 
perform in the movies. A lot of early movie musicals feature them. Yeah, and Mary's the classical pianist, so it has that same kind of interest in the high and the low at the same time. Absolutely. She performed at the Hippodrome, and I think she's going to end up being in my next book. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Your next book is about the Hippodrome Theater? Mm -hmm. Wow, what a great subject. It's been such a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Broadway Nation and telling us all about the amazing career and legacy of Gertrude Hoffman. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. From the crowd, Moses yelled out loud, Who put in your head such notions? You look sweet, jiggle with your feet. Who put in your back such funny motions? As a singer, you was always fine. Sing to me, because the world is mine. Then the crowd began to roar. Sadie gave a new encore. Moe's got mad and yelled at her once more. Here's the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Thank you in advance for your very generous support. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Don't do that dance, I tell you, Sadie. That's not our business for a lady. Most everybody knows that I'm your loving Mo's Oi, oi vey, where is your clothes? You better go and get your dresses. Everyone's got the opera glasses Oi, such a sad disgrace No one looks in your face Sadie, so long, go home Sadie, so long, go home Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family 
cannolis and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.